Today we talk with Victoria Hopewell, author of Grade A Baby Eggs, an infertility memoir. Welcome to the program. Oh, well, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, your book is about your personal journey. So let's start where this begins. You found yourself a 40-something divorced woman with two young daughters, and then you meet the man of your dreams. Uh, Yes, that's what happened. And we decided we wanted to have a child together. My husband had never been married. He was previously a confirmed bachelor. He said he never just met the right one until me. And we decided we wanted to start our family, um, except all things did not go according to plan in terms of starting our family together. Right. So... um, in this journey, he, said he, want, he, he wanted children, he welcomed yours, but he really wanted a child of his own. And, and this, uh, you had conversations, obviously, about your options, uh, and, and part of it was he was the last in his line. Is that? Yes. Believe it or not, he was the eighth generation of an unbroken male Jewish line from a famous Jewish scholar called the Vilna Gon from the 1700s. And my husband was an only child and he did not want to break his male line um, from his famous ancestor. So there's a lot of pressure now. Now right. you're, you're so, so you, you decide that um, you're going to go the in vitro. And so you're tell us what's involved in that process, because it, it's not it's I mean, it's it, it's can be painful. It's you, know, you get these shots all the time. Tell us what was happening. Um, it's very consuming. Your life really goes on hold while you're doing this. So you need to go to the hospital regularly. I had to take the train early in the morning every day and have blood drawings. My hormones were being monitored. Um, it wasn't conducive for being romantic. My husband was giving me shots all the time for hormones. Um, and then what ends up happening is everything has to go the right way. So you have to make the right amount of follicles. They have to develop. The eggs have to be harvested. One of my doctors told me that he wasn't sure if I was the one whose eggs would be underdone or overdone. So we had to sort of judge the right time to take them out. And then you just hope that your eggs are viable and that they will fertilize with your husband. And then ultimately, when they put them back in, you'll get pregnant. (laughs) Mm. And so uh, one of the things that, though, you found yourself in a little bit of a different situation than many of the other women that you encountered, they didn't have any children. You already had two children from from your first marriage. So you purposely didn't mention the fact that you had daughters to these women. Tell us why. Uh, Well, I really was afraid if I told them I had two children already that they wouldn't include me in the conversations in the waiting room and I wouldn't be a part of everybody because they would feel like I wasn't quite going through the same amount of desperation for having a child since I already had two. Um, But I really did want to have a child very, very badly, just as much as they did. Um, But I I really didn't share that because I was afraid I'd be excluded. Now, uh, you're a psychologist. Yes. So put on the psychology hat for a moment. Um, What is it that makes this desire to have a biological child so strong for some couples? Well, I think it really is something, in an, first of all, a lot of people really from early childhood always grow up thinking they're going to get married and have a child. So it's something that's part of your makeup from very early on. Um, and plus, there's a sense of continuing yourself, like you're going to have a baby, you're going to raise it. It's a way that you'll be giving life to that child, but then that child will go on. And it's a way to kind of continue, not necessarily an eighth generation line like my husband, but continue your a sense of something that's part of yourself. Mm-hmm. 
and so adoption is is an option for some couples and other couples it's not an option. Right. Well, in our case, we even did eventually discuss adoption. Um, My husband was very wedded to continuing his genetics, um, but I wanted to know that it was an even playing field so that if I was willing to give up my genetics and consider donor egg, that if need be, he would consider giving up his genetics and go towards adoption if need be. Yeah. Uh, And so you did find out it was your eggs. Um, Well, the doctors always told me it was my eggs because I was in my 40s. They Mm -hmm. said my chances were 9% or less. <laughs> but I really <coughs> um, felt that there was a possibility my husband's sperm were, was an issue as well. Right. We're talking with Victoria Hopewell. She's author of Grade A Baby Eggs, an infertility memoir. Um, your parents were not so thrilled when you broke the news that you and Gabriel were trying to have a child. No. Um, You would think that they would be very happily waiting for a grandchild, um, but they did not meet that stereotype at all. They were afraid that um, it would be very dangerous for me in my 40s to have a baby. Um, My mother said the hormone treatments would kill me. My grandmother had died of melanoma. She thought it would give me cancer. Um, They were very, very much against it. Um, And really, the people who were the most for it, besides my husband and I, were his parents. They were 90. Mm. Um, They had actually... I didn't marry him. He wasn't 70. He was in his 40s. It's just that they themselves had infertility issues. And his mom ended up having an undiagnosed polyp and had many miscarriages until she finally just had him. Yeah. So um, let's talk about the reaction from your daughters. Um, How old were your daughters at this time? They were Um, they were very young. So they were um, 11 and nine. And they were totally against it. They did not want me to have a baby. When I got remarried, they just wanted a puppy. And that was their main thing. Um, And they had lots of issues. My younger daughter said if I became pregnant, I couldn't come to any of her basketball games because none of the other mothers were going to be sitting there pregnant in their 40s. Um, My older daughter had learned about um, something in her religion class about IVF. And she said I was too old. I would never get pregnant anyway. And that I should just spend the money and read do her room. <laughs> Kids always have such an interesting perspective on things, don't they? Yes. So how many times did you try the in vitro with your eggs and I mean, it was five? It was five times, yes. So I actually tried five times with my own. I really, you know, when I went in the first appointment and the doctor told me to use a donor egg because my chances would be 40 to 60% versus 9% or less, um, I didn't listen to him. I was mm-hmm. very upset. To me, it wasn't the same and it wasn't interchangeable to just use a donor egg. And I was positive I was going to prove everybody wrong and get pregnant. Um, but with all the best intentions in the world, it didn't go that way. It didn't go that way. So, okay, you come to the realization this isn't going to happen. So now we start looking at the egg donor process. Right. And that was really a journey. Um, my husband was for it from the beginning. We were told that our chances would go up for 40 to 60% if I used an egg donor. Um, I was very ambivalent. I always thought I would have a child with my own genetics. Um, and so I went looking in the hospital for a support group so I could discuss it with other women. But they told me that they didn't have one. And the reason they didn't have one is because many of the women wanted to keep it secret. There was a stigma attached. They didn't want anybody to know they were using a donor. Um, and in fact, many of them never planned to tell their own child that they used a donor. Um, and when I finally did decide to use a donor, the hospital thought I might not want her because our blood types didn't match. And that's very important for many women because if they never plan to tell their child, they don't want to 
soap opera scene in the future where the child comes to donate blood and the doctor says to the child, that can't be your biological mother because your blood types don't match. Yeah, wow. And this this is uh, opens up a whole new world. This is, is uh, an unbelievable journey, as you find out. Not as much regulation as you might think. Uh, no, <laughs> there really isn't. <laughs> so I learned because I was put on a hospital wait list for a year and a half. Um, and somebody gave me a tip that you could buy eggs, they're bought and sold on the internet. So I decided to go shopping on the internet. And it was really like Saks versus Walmart. They were the people who donated with the were considered the extraordinary donors versus the ordinary ones. Um, and people who were paid the highest prices were the women who had the high SATs who look like models, and who previously produced twins or triplets. Um, and so, and the prices were not regulated at all. So although at the hospital, they were at that point paying the donor 7000 now my hospital pays them 8000 If you went to like Harvard or Yale or Princeton, you might be able to get fifty to 100000 um, And on top of that, um, as to some of the people claiming that they were musical divas or that they were Olympic athletes, there was not necessarily truth in advertising. So you didn't really know what you were getting because it's not really regulated. Something about that just feels so, I don't know, uh, like science fiction. You know, like, I, well, I, I want a baby that has, you know, brown eyes. I want somebody that's musically inclined as, you know, intelligence. Doesn't that, I mean, it just, it, it sounds like science fiction. Right. It does get into a brave new world approach. Um, and if you took it to an, ex an extreme, you could have technology, even with people using their own genetics in the future, where they may have the egg and sperm fertilized and have it done through IVF so the doctor could check the genetics and make sure the baby is inheriting the best genes that they want. And if they didn't want that one, they could pick another one. So wow. it gets to be a slippery slope ethically. Yeah, yeah. there was a, a quite a bit of controversy when uh, some supermodel eggs went up on eBay. Yes, there was a supermodel. There was a man who was auctioning off the eggs of supermodels, um, and people were placing very high bids to get these eggs, um, except at the time then it was closed down, and some places like eBay don't allow for the buying and selling of eggs online. But there are other um, others online. Yes. So you found out, I mean, and as you say, it's it's a whole wide range. You and your husband, I, I'm forgetting where you were, but you uh, opened up a, a, an advertising and saw these pictures and you, you, you of different donors and you click on them and you, or you, you, you the baby, whatever the baby, all had the same baby picture and you went, wait a second. So you called these people up and what did they say? Well, it was an organization where you could get um, donors and they said the reason I was seeing the same baby picture for every single donor is because... Um, that's what would happen until I paid $500. And then once I paid $500, I'd be able to join and see the real baby pictures that went with each person. A lot of money. This is big business. This egg donor business is big business. Yes, yes. And all of infertility, in fact, is it's over $3 billion a year. Yeah. The lack of, the, the lack of regulation is a bit disturbing. Yeah, I really think that um, they do need to add more. And in my book, Grade A Baby Eggs and Infertility Memoir, I added a section at the end called Cracking the Egg Donor Industry Recommended Reforms. And I talked about that they should have more price controls, that they really need to regulate what you're getting. And they also need more protection for the donors so that donors may not always realize that even though it's rare, there are very serious side effects where you could go into hyperstimulation and make too many eggs. You could have a blood clot. You could even die. 
die. Um, and if you donate too many times, the donor themselves in the future could become infertile. Mm. Um, so it really is something that needs to be looked at a lot more. Um, and just to give you an example of the other extreme, but this also causes problems. There are places like Australia and New Zealand where in those countries it's illegal to sell eggs. You can't pay any money for eggs, um, but that causes another problem because then there's a huge wait list and women have to go, many of them, to the United States and other countries in order to get an egg because not too many people want to donate for free. Um, so I think there needs to be something in the middle where you can buy eggs but not at exorbitant prices and it's more regulated. Yeah. Um, knowing what you know now about the process, would you do it again? Um, well, this is really what I think. I think I needed to go through it. I really needed to go through the five times with my own eggs. I needed to try donor eggs. I needed to do all of it because every step of the way was a journey to get to the next step. And before I could give up on my own eggs, I needed to know that I did everything I could. Um, and in the end, everybody does achieve some kind of resolution. I mean, even my daughters in the end um, were much more accepting. My older daughter, when I showed her the donor I had picked, my donor by the way, had been Cinderella in Disneyland. So I figured if she was good enough for Disney, she was good enough for me. Um, and my daughter thought the girl looked a little like her and had some of the same interests. And, and as a gift, my older daughter um, gave me a book of baby names to show that she was now, you know, more accepting that I could have this baby. Um, and so, you know, in the end, everybody comes to a place where they can, you know, ag agree to things. And, it, and in my case, it was, we were also integrating our step family at the same time that I was trying to have a baby. So so there was a lot going on. Um, and so we had to uh, deal with the stress of me trying to have a baby, but also have everybody come together. And ironically, even though my husband was desperate for this baby, he did have some adjustments to make with becoming an automatic father. And um, and he had brought some of his things from his old bachelor pad and put him in a room in the basement. And whenever <laughs> we drove him crazy, he would just go downstairs. Yeah, well, yeah three, you know, the three females and the one male thing, that's, that's always an issue too. You right. Know, you're kind of outnumbered. Um, and he 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 did have this sort of romanticized view of of what his child would be versus your two girls because you know when you're not a parent and you you you, you do you think oh they're going to be they're going to be smart and they're going to be funny and they're going to be you know well behaved and all of those things that as we become parents we know is, all kids are bad at something or naughty you know um, so that was a part of a, an issue for him too was was coming to grips with the reality of being a father yes because I think you know he had the attitude that children should almost be like seen and not heard. They'd be very well behaved. And I had daughters who were leaving popcorn in our bed, watching TV, running around using his towel, his scotch tape, not putting things back. He's a little OCD. So that kind of <laughs> stuff, you know, drove him crazy. Um, and he thought if he had a child from the beginning, they'd be very well disciplined, very behaved. And they'd also be, you know, more seeped in the religious part of life uh, right. than my children. Yeah. Um, one of the things you, you talk about in the book is sort of this, uh, you have this puppy mill analogy. Talk about that. Um, yes. Well, the puppy mill analogy has to do with the very popular donors. And some of the organizations would have the same donor donate over and over again, almost like when you buy a puppy from like a, you know, a pet store or something and they're breeding them. Um, and so some of the donors had very long wait lists and you could, you know, pay to go on the wait list and try to see if you would get that donor. Um, but there was one agency that I really, really respected because they had a donor who I was interested in and they said they couldn't tell me whether I could use her or not because after each donation they want to talk to her see if she wants to do it again see how she feels about it um, and they really want to protect their donor and go with how mm -hmm. they're doing and protect
protect them emotionally and physically. And, and I really was very, um, you know, very impressed by that because it was different to right. do that. Because a lot of them, it's all about the money. Right. right. All about the money. And this idea that people are not, this truth in advertising, or not maybe who they say they are. They're also maybe not divulging what inherited diseases, you know, or you could be, um, you know, subjecting yourself to. Um, and but there's this sense of, again, desperation. A lot of these women are just so desperate to have a child that that they don't they don't even think about that aspect. Right, right. Well, and you really don't know that much because, like, for example, people do a questionnaire, um, and the questionnaire asks, you know, do you have mental illness? Do you have physical illnesses? And many times they just say no. Um, I had a, a donor who was very um, honest who admitted she smoked pot once, and so <laughs> she put that on her questionnaire. Um, and from the hospital, you don't get as much information. In terms of what they look like, um, you'd sort of have to be somebody who, when, like, there's a criminal and the people who do the artwork to try to, from mm -hmm. a witness description, recreate the criminal, you'd have to be having that kind of ability to figure it out because I got things like um, she has a pointy chin, yeah. she has rounded cheeks. You know, I had no idea what her face would look what like from like, the description. Yeah. Wow. Um, we're talking with Victoria Hopel. Her book is Grade A Baby Eggs, an infertility memoir. Um, so when you're when they're you, the donor egg thing, you had people you, you had the hospital you're working with different agencies. But in the beginning, you had friends who would come and say, hey, I've got somebody who will who will, you know, give you an egg, which is a very sweet thing. But as you were saying, I, I, that's too close to home. Right, right. Well, and I actually did go on a blind egg date because right. um, I had been keeping a diary and I decided I was going to turn it into a book because I just felt so alone during much of the process and I wanted to be able to share my story with other people. Um, and, and so in my memoir writing group, somebody came up to me and said to me um, that she said, Victoria, I have an answer for you. She said, I have someone who wants to donate their egg to you. And so she set up a blind egg date and the two of us went together to Starbucks um, and and my friend came along too. Um, I'm sorry, actually not Starbucks. It was Oban Pan. And so we all sat around the table together. And the woman told me that she thought she'd be, you know, great at donating eggs. She'd be really fertile. But she said we had to hurry because in three months she'd be 35. And she didn't think the hospital would let her in, you know, unless she did it quickly because she was getting older. Um, and also she said that her children, you know, might want to end up uh, meeting the new sibling, which that I wasn't that interested in either. Yeah. Um, and it really, you know, was was like a date. So we said goodbye. We didn't kiss each other, but we hugged each mm -hmm. other. We exchanged numbers. Um, but I didn't end up using her. Yeah. Well, and that's this is the kind of goes back to, uh, again, there's the donors you know really nothing about. They're just giving you information. And then there's the donors that you would act, could actually meet and talk to. Uh, so there's this a right. lot of lot, depending on you know what route you go right and and i think some of those issues are in adoption also where there are people right. who might want a child and they like want an a open co adoption, parent right. and and know the person um i really wanted it to be anonymous i i felt like i already was dealing with visitations from my ex-husband i didn't want to also be scheduling visits with my donor egg mom as well right. yeah and so th so uh, there are actually legal documents that you would if you're going to do the open route, that where the egg donor person would have some sort of visitation rights, right? Yeah, and there's legal documents even with the closed route to make sure it stays closed, and it gets complicated because one donor that I was using was in California, and so I wanted to make sure you know what the state's rules were in each place, how it would work, because right. it get complicated if the egg is from California, I'm from New York, um, and so you have to have careful documentation drawn up. Also, if it's going to be, they can't see the child. What's the cost factor? 
chiropractor because this can get, get very expensive. Oh, it's very expensive. IVF treatments, each IVF treatment on average at this point costs about $12,400. Mm. Um, and donor egg could be a lot more expensive. It could be like 30000 or more because wow. you're not just paying for the egg. You're paying for them to get treated and to have the operation and you to have the transfer. And, and the whole thing is very costly. And there's only um, 15 states in the United States that mandate that infertility treatment be covered. Um, and even those 15, not all of them have full coverage. Like in New York, I didn't get coverage for the IVF treatment. It was more mm. for like the cheaper things like going to the doctor and having your blood drawn. Mm, wow. So talk a little bit about the uh, family blending uh, uh, and your husband's relationship with the girls. It improved over time. Yeah, it did improve. Um, he, we He really made an effort. So for example, uh, he was very busy. You know, he's a, a physician who worked at a hospital and they were understaffed and everybody was overworked. <laughs> so we had to go in a lot. Um, but anyway, so for example, with my younger daughter, he started um, a Monopoly game. It went on for weeks, but, but it was on the living room floor and we would all sit and play Monopoly together. Um, you know, he was involved in the bat mitzvahs for my daughter. So both of them. So he felt like more like he was imparting some of the Judaism. Um, he began to get a sense that, you know, children don't have to always be so well behaved all of the time time. And, um, and, you know, with my children, there was some ambivalence because they would go back and forth. Like my old daughter would sometimes call him by his first name, would, you know, might say Gabriel, might say dad, might say stepdad. And then she was, so she didn't have to deal with that. She was just calling him, Hey, you. <laughs> and, and so my husband just said, you know, it's okay to call me, you know, your stepdad, I won't be hurt, but I'd rather have that than Hey, you. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, so t- the fact that this didn't work for you, did, psychologically, how did you come to, to, to terms with that? And, and how did Gabriel come to terms with it? Well, it was very difficult. Um, I mean, seeing people with babies, you know, was a very, very hard thing going into the hospital for the last consultation and, you know, and having the doctor, you know, say if we wanted, he actually suggested the doctor that we could do one last time with half my husband's sperm and half somebody else's as an experiment and then, you know, see what would happen. Um, but it gets to a point where you really have to have like an end point, like a finishing line, because otherwise it's just too hard to deal with that open-ended, you know, ambiguity for all that time without finally saying like, this will be it. Um, and for my husband, he, you know, I, I was worried, like for a while he was having fantasies, we could have an apartment in France and, you know, do all these different things, um, you know, while we were going through the process, mm-hmm. I think is like something to feel better. Um, but it, we didn't, have money to have an apartment in France. <laughs> but but in the end, what happened is he had this constructive idea that he could establish like a fund at the temple for like a sleepaway camp, like in the name of his family and his mm-hmm. ancestor. And it'd be a way to feel like he was still carrying on. That's even, a great idea. Right. He couldn't yeah. have the child. Right. Um, so putting back on the psychology hat again for a moment. Um, women, a lot of women are choosing to have children older. And so this is part of the reason why this is such big business. Yes. And so what are your thoughts on that as as far as, you know, holding off and, and waiting and having children later? Well, 
Um, it's a very mixed bag. Um, they just actually had an article um, very recently in New York Magazine, a picture of a woman in her 60s who was heavily pregnant and saying, is this woman too old for this? Um, you know, and some of the debate was some people thought it was appalling to have a baby when you're much older and other people felt you'd be a really good parent because you'd have the time and you could really dedicate it and there are grandparents who bring up their children. Um, for me personally, I set the cutoff at 50 for me. <laughs> you know, I just decided after that I would feel too much like I was going against nature and, and that would be the point. I would walk away. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I, I don't judge people if they want to have them too old. But the other issue, which I was worried about, too, is that I wanted to be alive for my child. And I guess mm -hmm. if I was older, I'd want a backup plan of who would take care of the child if I didn't live. Yeah. A lot of things to think about, too, when you're as you're mentioning, when you're going the in, in vitro. And as part of the uh, I'm just thinking about the stuff you have in the back of the book. Uh, Part of this is hoping to get some dialogue and some discussion about how this could be and should be better regulated and that people should know all their options and understand what they're getting into. Yes, I think it's very important for people to really be more aware and for things to be looked at more psychologically too. Like I think it's important not to just say, you know, use a donor egg, but to go through with the person how they might feel about it and that it may not just be the same, have a chance for women to band together more with each other and support each other in the waiting rooms and, in, you know, through the hospital because people do feel very isolated um, and I think it's good for the general public to know about it. There's 7.3 million infertile Americans right now. And I think that um, it's good for everybody to know that there's this whole world that lies out there that unless you're in it, you may not know about. Mm. And also like the, the options, as we were saying, adoption is a good choice for some people, may not be for others, but it's something to consider as well. Yes, yes. Okay. And, and the good thing about adoption, although there could be pitfalls with that too, is in the end, you could really be guaranteed to have the child versus going through all these treatments and still maybe not getting pregnant. And yeah, and again, that cost factor, I mean, that's it's, it's unbelievable the, the, what it costs. Right. There were women I met who had maxed out their credit cards, had second mortgages wow. on their homes. It's incredible how financially draining it is besides the emotional part. Right. Victoria Hopewell, the book is Grade A Baby Eggs, an Infertility Memoir. Thanks for joining us. Oh, and thank you so much. We're very happy to be here talking about it. I'm Indy Todd. Thanks for listening.